So our first year here in Ohio, which was like six and a half years ago, it wasn't long before I heard we were only four hours from Niagara Falls. And as a West Coaster, I was like, what? I didn't think I'd ever get to see Niagara Falls. So done. So we packed up the car on Father's Day, that first year here, and went to Niagara Falls. And man, it was amazing. How many of you have been? I know a lot of you have been to Niagara Falls. It's beautiful. It's, such, it's one of the many perks about living in Ohio is, is some of the things we get to go see. And so uh, we went, and it was beautiful, and it was also dangerous. You know, all the stories of everyone who's gone off and all the containers and just thinking about the pull of those falls. It's, it's crazy to think about the power that's there. I would not want to be in a boat going the wrong way in Niagara Niagara Falls and the Niagara River. Now, a lot of us have heard of Niagara Falls, we've heard of the Niagara River, but maybe you've never heard of the Welland River. Now, the Welland River runs on the southern part of Ontario and dumps into the Niagara River. And so on the Welland River, boaters get to enjoy fishing and boating and canoeing and all those things, uh, but eventually the current starts to pick up as it gets closer to the Niagara River and dumps into the Niagara River. And I've heard that there is a bridge there as you get closer to the mouth of the Niagara River uh, that's facing boaters coming up the Welland River that ask them two very important questions. The first question is this, do you have an anchor? And the second question is this, do you know how to use it? <laughs> because if a, if, a, if a boater in the Welland River is not paying attention and they don't have an anchor or they don't know how to use the anchor they have, next thing they know, they're going to be in the Niagara River, which is going to be a whole different kind of ride. Now, I don't know what you know about anchors. I've got a pretty uh, standard anchor here that you'll find on most boats uh, out here in Lake Erie or, you know, standard sailboats. Most people think an anchor operates by weight, right? You just drop it in the water and it just holds you. No, anchors are not really so much about weight. It's about design, right? A lot of you uh, boaters are going, oh, yeah, yeah, we know this. And so we see these forks here, these flukes that protrude forward that when the anchor is dropped, it is, is drug along the seafloor until it finds something to set into. And once the anchor is set, then the boat is secure, and the boat's not going to get carried by the current or carried by the drift because the anchor's been set into something very strong. And so the two questions I have for you this morning are these. Do you have an anchor, and do you know how to use it? <laughs> uh, we live in a pretty crazy world, don't we? We navigate a world right now where there are dangerous currents that we experience. And because of sin... And because of the brokenness of humanity, we experience brokenness on that personal level, on relational level, on a national level, on a global level. And it can be very easy for us to have moments of hopelessness. When we read through the headlines, when we see what's going on in our lives and our relationships and things going on around us, and we start to feel the current of the world pulling us. And it wants to pull us toward the falls, which then will destroy us and our faith and our family and our hope. So what is your hope anchored into or set into? Or more importantly, as we've learned, who is your hope anchored to or set to? Now, we've been looking at uh, seven powerful statements proclaimed by Jesus. Each statement is a declaration that he is God when he uses the words, I am. And then it's followed by some sort of metaphor in how he relates to us. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. And today, we're going to look at probably the most profound 
and controversial statement uttered by Jesus in the I am statements. And this is what he says. Look, at, look, at, look in your Bibles. I want you to see it yourself. Look, turn to John 14. So get your Bibles open or your Bible apps open to John 14. I want you to see this statement with your own eyes. We're going to start in verses 1 and in, through, in 6. In John 14, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. We'll unpack that in a minute. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, let's understand the context of when this was stated. Where was Jesus? Who was with him? What was going on? This is when Jesus was in the upper room with his closest disciples, and he was just hours away from his arrest and crucifixion. And what these disciples know, these men who love Jesus, and they've followed him faithfully for three years, all they know is this in this moment, A... Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and Judas had already left the room to do so. B, Peter, the rock, is going to deny Jesus, that he even knew him. And C, Jesus says, I'm leaving. If you were a disciple, how would you be feeling in that moment? I'd be feeling pretty hopeless. Because what's about to happen in this short moment after the, the, the rest of Christ and the crucifixion is there's going to be this aftermath of crazy emotion and circumstances that the disciples have to navigate themselves through. And in this moment, Jesus is trying to give them hope and encouragement because what they're feeling is fear and confusion and hopelessness. I'm sure you've never felt fear or confusion or hopelessness in your life. That's what these guys are feeling. And so Jesus is saying, don't be troubled. Don't be disturbed by this. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Again, a statement that he is equal with God. He is God. And he's saying, I'm leaving, all right. But the reason I'm leaving is because I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to go set a place at the table for you so that I can come and get you and bring you back to where I'm going to be. Now, when we look at that, we have to be very careful in how we limit this understanding of the statement. Because when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, in my Father's house are many rooms or dwelling places, sometimes we limit that to merely an understanding of heaven. Yes, it is heaven. But heaven is not heaven because it's going to have many rooms. Heaven's not heaven's because it's a mansion in the sky, if you will. Heaven's not heaven because it's going to be this, just this amazing existence in eternity. Heaven is heaven because Christ is there. And when Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, he said, I'm going to go. And of course, how is he going to prepare this place? What, what work is he going to have to do to prepare the place? Go to the cross. He said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I mean, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of mankind. And then I'm going to be raised from the grave. This is my preparation for you to have access to God. This is my preparation for you to be able to go to be where I'm going to be. And so I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But it's the presence of Christ. Now, think about times when you travel to be with family and friends. Like, like when, we, when we go back to California, like we love California, it's our home state, you know, born there, raised there. But what makes that trip really fun for us is we get to see the family and close friends, right? 
And there's been times when we've traveled back to California when certain family or certain friends aren't there. It's not the same, right? When you go to certain places, maybe someone's passed away, maybe the, someone's traveling and they're not there. It's not the same without them. And so we have to be very careful that what makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus. It's our reunion with him. And so he's giving them this hope. He's trying to set them in a place because it's going to get crazy. And in this moment here, he's saying, I'm the way, you know, I'm the truth, I'm the life. But he sets it up first. He says, you know where I'm going and you know the way to get there. And then we've got good old Thomas, right? The critical thinker, the skeptic, um, Jesus, we actually don't know where you're going and how can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going, right? He's going, ah, we don't know how you're getting there. Jesus set him up a little bit, didn't he? He teed him up to drop this statement. He's going to drop this anchor to set their hope in him because it's going to get crazy for them. In John 14, 6, and I want you guys to say it with me. Let's look at this I am statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. In a very short time, the world's going to turn upside down for the disciples. And he was saying the only action that's going to give you the hope that you need, and not just a temporary hope, but an everlasting hope, is to set yourselves in me, to anchor your belief in me. And in a world where personal opinion and individual feelings and relativism becomes standard for normal, it's like a current. We live in a world in a current trying to pull us away from the Lord. In the same way, we have to anchor ourselves, we have to set ourselves into our belief in Christ. And if we do, we anchor ourselves to a hope that can be with us forever. And so we understand why Jesus made this statement. Now let's unpack it a bit. Now we believe in Jesus, and we, our belief in Jesus can give us everlasting hope because Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. As we unpack this three-part I am statement, we first see the significance of him saying, I'm the way to God. Now we've talked about this a lot in the last couple weeks, so we don't need to linger here long. But let's look at it a little bit. The word way in the original Greek is the word hadas. It means path or road, the way to travel. Jesus is teaching, and this is very important, Jesus is teaching that there is only one way to God. He's teaching that there's only one way to access heaven and a relationship with God and forgiveness and that he was the way. Now, the disciples had expressed their confusion about where he was going and how they were going to follow, and he's letting them know that he's going to go prepare this place for them so that they can come with him, and the preparation, like we just said, is his death and resurrection. And that's so significant because Jesus, as the sinless Savior, was the only one who could pay for the price of the sins of mankind. Jesus was the only one who could take the impassable chasm that exists between God and man because of sin and bridge it. He, he's the only one that did that work. He atoned for the sins of mankind. So that's what gives credibility to him saying he is the only way. So when Jesus says he's the way, he literally means he is the way to God. There is no other way. Now, if we were to show up at an unfamiliar town, and let's say your phone was acting up or your GPS was acting up, and you didn't know how to get to where you were going. If you were to pull over and ask somebody for directions and they were to say to you, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to drive straight about a mile, then you're gonna see this barn, then you're gonna take a left, and at the left, you'll go down there about another mile and a half, then you'll see a gas station, take a right, then the name of this road is such and such, and there you are. They told you the way. They explained the way. 
But if you were to pull over and ask someone for directions and then said, follow me, and you followed them to that destination, they, in essence, became the way for you by showing you that. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to teach you a way to God. He didn't say, I'm going to explain the way to God. He simply said, I am the way to God. He's the one that takes us there himself. So the way is a person. That's Jesus. Now, this was offensive when it was spoken in a highly Jewish context, right? When God didn't have the Savior here, this was also offensive because it was spoken in a pluralistic and polytheistic first century Roman culture. Well, it's still offensive now. It's offensive but, and difficult to believe. That doesn't make it inaccurate. And we live in a world that wants harmony over reality. We live in a world that wants harmony over accuracy. So let me ask you this. If you're going to anchor your soul to information that's going to determine your eternity, do you want harmony or do you want um, accuracy? You're going to want accuracy. What's true? What's right? What's real? I need to anchor my hope in that because if I just anchor it in harmony, harmony moves because we know that consensus moves. Culture moves. People change their minds. God doesn't change his mind. God is fixed. And the way that he has made access to himself and forgiveness for sins is fixed. And so Jesus is teaching that he is the only way. He's teaching a narrow way. He's teaching an exclusive way. If you continue the rest of John 14, 6, look at the clarity of what he said here. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, just grasp that. Jesus Christ said, no one, no one gets to the Father, which means heaven, forgiveness of sins, relationship with God. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only key to the door. That's what Jesus taught. And for those who would like to bend Jesus into a very tolerant or pliable or redefined son of God, this phrase leaves no margin or room for misunderstanding Jesus. He was very clear. And if if, if you're struggling with that, think about this for a second. We know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of man. We know that he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death. If there are other ways to God, then Jesus Christ died needlessly. There was no point in him dying. If there's any other way to God, then the story of Jesus is a sad pathetic story of a man who died when he didn't need to. No, the death of Christ is the only way for atonement. It's the only way for man to be made right with God. That's why we need to look at Jesus as the way, because if he's not the way, if there's more than one way, then Jesus' death was absolutely pointless, and it does nothing for mankind. It's just a sad story. You know, it's interesting how ungrateful we are as creatures, because we can wrestle with the fact that God provides only one way for salvation instead of being grateful that he provides a way of salvation at all. Now, I'll take one way over no way any day. How about you? <laughs> you know. And so in a world that wants to sell us on multiple ways to God, we have to anchor, we have to set our belief in Jesus. And if we do, we live with an everlasting hope for things going on in this life as well as what's going to happen for eternity. Our eternity's set Also, our belief in Jesus can give us everlasting hope because Jesus is the truth of God. Jesus is the truth of God. And we're going to spend some time here because I just dropped the T word, truth. 
truth. The word here in the original language is alithaya. It means factual. It means reality in any matter, especially moral and spiritual. And so we live in a fractured world of falsehood, right? People are morally disoriented. They're desperately adrift in the current of relativism. People have spiritual vertigo, and we're driven by the ethics of the individual or the consensus of culture. And we get things like fake news and alternative facts. And the current of human deception and wisdom pulls on our mind and it pulls on our hearts and pulls on our souls. We're surrounded by lies. And our leaders lie to us. There's people in our life lying to us. And we lie to ourselves. There are lies that some of us are believing and operating on today. And so it's no wonder that people elevate their personal opinion and their personal feelings above the facts, above data, above history. It's interesting, in April of 66, Time Magazine released their infamous cover, Is God Dead? Last month, they released their cover to match it, Is Truth Dead? Last year, Oxford Dictionary, they do this every year, they pick a word of the year, a word that they they think best captures the ethos of the culture. What word did they choose for 2016? Post-truth. Saying we live in a post-truth culture. Barna's been doing a ton of study on this. One of the questions I find interesting in one of the last polls a couple years ago was this question. Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. How much do you agree with that statement? Well, the elders, people born before 1946, 39% agreed with that. Boomers between 46 and 64 47% agreed with that. Gen X, born between 65 and 83, 59% agreed with that statement. Millennials, between 84 and 2002 births, 74% agreed with that. You know what's more shocking? 41% of people who proclaim to be practicing Christians said they agreed with that. That the only truth you can know is what's basically good for you, what you think, what your experience. Do you guys hear the falls? You feel the pull of the current in the river? You've got to anchor yourself to Christ because there's a current. Do you have an anchor and do you know how to use it? Are you set in Christ and in his truth and in him as truth? Now, before we start to go, oh no, the world's falling apart. This is not new. This isn't new. This this whole concept of man making his own way Listening to his own truth, creating his own truth, living in lies isn't true. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. God speaking to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Sounds like a headline from 2017, doesn't it? This was written in 600 B.C. Like, this isn't new, right? Like, even during the times of Jesus, the Roman Empire, we look at this incredible conversation after the arrest of Jesus. Jesus is standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and they're having a dialogue. And in John 18, we see this dialogue. Pilate says to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And listen very carefully what Jesus says here. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I came into the world to bear witness to the what? truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's a pretty uh, arrogant claim, don't you think? Unless, of course, it's true. And Pilate's response, what is truth? 
What is truth? See, this is not new. In fact, if you want to see how old this is, all you got to do is open up the Bible to this little book called Genesis. And we see when this all went down, right? Like, let's just go back in history, our history for a minute, to Genesis chapter 3, the fall, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that, God, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what's happening here? Eve knows the truth. She's anchored. But the serpent comes in, and he creates a current, and he pulls, and he pulls, and he pulls. And what's he do? He challenges the word of God. Did God really say, well, God doesn't really mean that. Does that sound familiar at all? And it's the same old lie, repackaged over and over and over again. And she bit, literally. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Temporary pleasure, temporary understanding took place. And all of a sudden there was a seismic shift in what mankind saw and interacted with on truth. In this moment, mankind declared, I will make my own way. I will make my own truth and I will make my own life. That's what mankind did. When Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, when God says, I've given you my word so that you can have truth and and know me as the way and walk in my way and you can have the life, mankind says, no, 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 no. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to make my own truth. I'm going to create my own life. That's what mankind did. And Lucifer appealed to the human ego, and he challenged the truth of what God said. And since then, man strives to evict God from his life and try to establish himself as God and live by his own truth. How arrogant we are to think that our thinking and our morality and our moral compass and our views surpass God's. And that ultimately we are the determiners of what's right and what's wrong and what's truth and what's not truth and what's fair and what's not fair, rather to yielding to the ultimate judge, the holy judge who knows all things, holds all things, judges all things. We need to trust him and his word and his truth. You know, when we make our own truth claims and we elevate our own personal opinion, and our own personal feelings above what God has made known to be true, here's what we're doing. We're revealing that we want to be God rather than be with God. When we decide that we're going to do our own thing, and we're going to believe our own thing, we are clearly saying, I don't want to be with God, I want to be God. And that's the current that's pulling in our culture. Ravi Zacharias, brilliant Christian theologian, teacher, says this, true freedom is not the liberty to do as we please, rather to do as we ought. For that, we need the truth. The grace of God is our only, what? Hope. To enable us to live by the truth, 
No culture can survive without this. You know, we have so many people caught in the current of this world, heading down the falls. Here's, here's what I've been wondering. Who's going to pick up the pieces? There's, there's going to be like this whole culture of post-truth refugees. Because once you go down that road of just believing what I want to believe, I'm going to make up my own truth, or truth, you know, there's many truths, it's going to take you to a place of damage and destruction. It's going to take you away from God for eternity. But even here in this life, there's consequences for believing that way and operating that way. It's really a contradiction to our own soul because there's truths that we say. Because the second we say there is no truth, we just made an absolute claim in truth. Like we love contradiction, but people are going to hurt their lives and hurt the lives of the people around them. Who's going to pick up the pieces? Who's going to be there for the people in the post-truth refugee camp? Hopefully the body of Christ will be ready to respond. You know, when you look at the smorgasbord of faith out there, it's Jesus that best answers the dilemma of man. Jesus is the one that best answers to our pride and our rebellion and our sin. When you think about the big four questions of worldview, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, the biblical worldview anchored in Christ gives the best answer. It gives the most reputable answer, the most historically solid answer. Our origin, created by God who loves us and um, wants to spend eternity with us. Our meaning, to glorify Him, to live a life for a purpose for Him. Morality, we're made in the image of God a good God who gave us good to do. And destiny, spend eternity with him. Like the, the, the biblical worldview answers those questions best. And when people claim to teach the truth, when people redefine the truth, they get off base. And Jesus just took it to a whole nother level when he said he is truth. He's moral perfection. He's the standard. He's the only rock that we can anchor to. So because Jesus is the truth, and because Jesus is alive, guess what? Truth is alive. Sorry, Time Magazine, all right? Truth is alive. And if our belief is anchored to him, and if our belief is set in him, then we have hope, eternal hope, everlasting hope. And so our belief in Jesus gives us everlasting hope because he is the way to God. He is the truth of God. And here he says he's the life from God. He's the life from God. Jesus wants us to have life. We saw in John 10.10, 10, a life abundantly. This life is that Greek word zoe. I mentioned this before. It means vitality. It means fullness of life. It means real, genuine. It only makes sense that if you find the way, you'll find life. If you find the truth, you'll find the life. And Jesus is that life. Life originated from Jesus. Life is found in Jesus. This life is best experienced with Jesus. Eternal life can only be experienced because of Jesus. And Jesus saying he's the life means he's the source of all life, physical and spiritual. He's life-giving. Without Christ, we're dead. We're dead in our sins. In fact, that's exactly what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Oh, look, a current. <laughs> following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom 
We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You understand, of course, that saying there's many truths so there's no truth is a passion of the mind. It's the mind trying to create what it wants for fulfillment, for self-fulfillment. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh according to the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If we live like there's no truth or there's many truths, then Jesus isn't the truth and the wrath of God remains upon us. Now the wrath of God upon us will have us spend eternity apart from God in hell. Eternity, the wrath of God. But once you believe in Christ, once you turn to Christ, the wrath of God has been paid for in Christ and is no longer upon you. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us what? Alive. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And so Jesus gives life to our souls so we can have eternal security. Jesus gives vitality to our lives here on earth so that we can have meaning and purpose and new life. Sadly, too many Christians are walking around with this kind of mindset. I got saved, now I'm good, I'm just waiting for heaven. Like that's not what we were saved for. That's not what we were saved to. We were saved for life, to life. Not just in heaven, but here as well. And to live on mission, helping others discover Christ so that they could have the same thing. Jesus is the life. He gives greater meaning to life, purpose to life, beauty to life, restoration to life. Jesus makes life worth living. He's the life. What a glorious outcome of being anchored, of being set in Christ. What a beautiful gift of grace to experience the life that's closer to what God intended us to live from creation. But it's only found in Christ. You know, this week I got a chance to sit down with a friend uh, she's been coming here for years, her and her husband, and just talk to her. She's got a fascinating story of just searching for truth among many truths until she found Christ. It's a larger story, but I just had a chance to interview her and just hear a little bit more about that story. I wanted to share that with you. So let's hear Nancy. Hello there. Uh, we have been looking at the I Am Statements of Jesus, and today we talked about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And I get to spend a few minutes here with my friend Nancy Broadbent. Nancy Broadbent has been coming to CVC for years. She's worked here. She's served here. She's been a faithful part of the CVC community for years. And Nancy, as I got to know you, uh, your story is a fascinating story. And uh, you have an uh, interesting background when it comes to faith. And so as we've been talking about Jesus being the way and the truth, especially, and the life, maybe you can share with us a little bit about your faith background. What kind of faith background did you have growing up? Well, my father was an atheist, and my mother was very dutiful to raise us in a church, but she herself was lukewarm. The faith I was raised in um, was heavy on ritual and rules mm. and light on relationship. Um, I never doubted that God existed, but I was angry with Him and I was, I felt hurt. I felt like God had abandoned me. I looked at yoga and meditation, transcendental meditation. I chanted with the Buddhists. I attended Hindu goddess ceremonies. Well, everything was intriguing and fascinating in the beginning, but I always came up empty. What, what was your journey like to find 
Jesus as the truth as he claims to be. I had more of what we call a sunrise rather than a light switch. Um, I started, we started coming to services regularly. We started studying. Obviously with all the different uh, background that you had had spiritually, what was it about Jesus that was standing out, that was making him unique or different than everything else you had been experiencing? There were two things that stood out for me. The first was that he wasn't asking me to do anything other than believe in him. I didn't have to pray a certain way. I didn't have to attend something. I didn't have to chant. Um, <laughs> that it was a free gift that was being offered to me. And the other thing was that I was being offered a relationship. And that's what I had always craved and always wanted. And I didn't know that this was where I could find it. There were even moments as a believer that you had to test, is Jesus the truth? Absolutely. Life hasn't been always easy. It hasn't, he hasn't kept me from having experiences that have been tough. But he has been with me just as he promised that he would be. What about those who are still searching? If there's someone watching or listening right now that they're still in their journey, they're still maybe waiting for that sunrise in their own life, um, what would you say to them? You know, I used to believe that all roads led to God and that they were all equal. And I used to believe that not only that Jesus wasn't the way, but he wasn't even the better way. I really want to save you from having to walk down so many dead-end roads like I did. And there's an expression, seeing is believing, but in this case, it's backwards. Believing is seeing. What a glorious awakening to realize that you don't have to look for something to give you hope. You have someone to give you hope. And to anchor your hope in him, in the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know what's so freeing about that statement for us as believers of Christ? We didn't make that claim. Jesus made it. We just quote him. We're just quoting Jesus. In fact, you can even use that as you're, as you're having spiritual conversations with people who are searching. It might be better to, instead of saying, well, I believe Jesus is the only way, maybe it's better to say, you know what? Jesus taught that he is the only way to God. He taught that he's the way, the truth, and life. And you know what? He died and rose from the grave, and I just believe in what he said. And that might be a better way to approach that, to put the, put the focus on Christ. This is what Christ has said. This is what Jesus has said. And, and how can we believe him? Well, I'll tell you what. A guy who's risen from the grave sure has a lot of credibility. I think we can believe in the one who rose from the grave. His resurrection is his signature to authenticate the claim. that He truly is the way and the truth and the life. Our responsibility, you only have two options. You either receive it and believe it and live in light of that and the hope that comes with it, or you reject it and you don't believe it. And you keep looking, and you keep drifting in the current of whatever's out there. Our hope is that you would truly consider the claims of Christ, truly consider why we believe the claims of Christ, because of his death and resurrection. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, we hold a, a precious message 
that a bunch of people out there adrift need to hear. And so as you anchor yourself to Christ, you're going to have an everlasting hope. But it's not just for you to carry for yourself. It's to pass on to others. And for anyone here who doesn't know Christ or who's watching and doesn't know Christ, Jesus is offering you. He's offering you the way. He's offering you the truth. He's offering you to life. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for a chance to just look at your word and to look at this powerful claim of Jesus. God, thank you that you didn't leave us to just float, to just drift in all that the world says, Lord, just copious contradictory beliefs against contradictory beliefs. Lord, we know that uh, there is one truth. There's one hope, and it all resides in Christ. Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ who know that and believe that, Father, I pray that today was a refreshing reminder for them that their hope is secure, that we believe in the one who's immovable, who's authenticated all that he said through his resurrection. So, Father, give us the hope that's everlasting. Let us be reminded of that hope that's everlasting. And, Father, let us carry that message of everlasting hope to those who need it. And for anyone here this morning or watching online right now that doesn't know Christ, but you know you need Christ and you're ready, I just offer you a sample type of prayer that you can tell the Lord right now. You're going to stop right now and choose belief by just telling God something like this. Say, dear God, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. And right now, I commit my life to following you. I turn to Christ. Father, thank you for this time. God, may we leave here different than when we came because we opened your word and heard from you. We ask in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. If you're coming to Christ today, we're asking you to do two things. One, turn to Christ, but also turn in a card. In your response section, in your program, there's a place that you can indicate that you've come to Christ today, that you're turning to Christ. Please indicate that and turn it in in the baskets that come around shortly as we receive our offering. We would love for you to, to, to let us know how we can help you take your next steps to growth. Let's continue in worship this morning.